he's waiting for me, I'm waiting for him. Yes. <laughs> we could just sit here all morning. <laughs> Open your Bibles with me to Psalm number 5. Psalm number 5. Good to see Helen with us again. Always good to have visitors come back. She really wasn't a visitor. She was part of us, right, Helen? Good to have you here. Psalm number five to the choir master for the flutes, a psalm of David. Give ear to my words, O Lord. Consider my groaning. Give attention to the sound of my cry, my King and my God. For to you do I pray. O Lord, in the morning you hear my voice. In the morning I prepare a sacrifice for you and watch. For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. But I, through the abundance of your steadfast love, will enter your house. I will bow down toward your holy temple in the fear of you. Lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness because of my enemies. Make your way straight before me. For there is no truth in their mouth. Their innermost self is destruction. Their throat is an open grave. They flatter with their tongue. Make them bear their guilt, O God. Let them fall by their own counsels. Because of the abundance of their transgressions, cast them out, for they have rebelled against you. But let all who take refuge in you rejoice. Let them ever sing for joy and spread your protection over them that those who love your name may exalt in you. For you bless the righteous, O Lord. You cover him with favor as with a shield. Amen. Amen. Let's look to the Lord in prayer. Father, we want to thank you that our righteousness can only be found in Christ alone. And that through faith in his death, burial, and resurrection, by the work of your amazing grace, you have imputed that righteousness of Christ into us. What, a, what an amazing, amazing blessing that is. We thank you that we have all spiritual blessings in Christ. Father, um, lead us in your righteousness, I pray, as we go through our days in this, this world that we live. It's a, an evil place. Um, we see evil all around us, and yet we have many opportunities to live in the power of your Holy Spirit. We can live that righteous life. So, Father, I pray that for all of us as we go out into the world from here, that we'll be refreshed here through the, the, your word and singing praises, but we will live that life that will exalt Christ in all things, Father. And as we do that, then we will bring glory and honor to you. Lord, I want to pray for our missionaries this morning. I think of all of our missionaries, how they serve in many different countries, those that have been here with us, that have gone out, those who were brought up in other cultures, Lord, we pray for them. Fill them with your spirit. May those who are preaching your word today preach with power. 
and may they speak as though they're speaking the very words of God. Father, so we pray that you would comfort them. I know many are still experiencing lockdowns and different things in different countries, so we pray that you would protect them and then use this time uh, in their ministries. Father, we also pray for our governing authorities. Um, We pray that they would come to Christ. Lord, you tell us that uh, it's pleasing to you when we pray for them, we pray for their salvation, so we do pray for them. We pray that uh, they would come to Christ and they would follow your word in governing uh, this great country. Father, I want to pray for all of our people here. I pray, Father, that uh, uh, you would continue to work in our lives and and lead us uh, in the nurture and admonition of, of your word through the preaching of Pastor Stephen. I want to pray for Pastor Stephen this morning, that you fill him with your spirit. Father, I know he has studied this great book of Hebrews as he's leading us through it. And may you prepare our hearts to hear your word and then not just be hearers, but be doers of your word. Father, we want to be a changed people. We want that uh, we desire to live that Christ-like life and to be conformed to the image of Christ. And we know that that happens by the renewing of our minds through the hearing of your word and then putting it into practice. So I pray that uh, for all of us today. So, Father, I hold up Pastor as he brings us your word. Um, May he uh, speak as though he's speaking the very word of God. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Pastor Stephen. Uh, Children, you can be dismissed. Well, good morning. If you have your Bibles, you can be turning to the book of Hebrews, chapter number 2. chapter number two. As some of you know, um, uh, we're heading out of town today, uh, the boys and I, headed down to Tennessee this afternoon and uh, or making our beginning journey, so we would covet your prayers uh, down to Tennessee for a few days and then going on to a Ligonier conference. Uh, Ed and Faith will be traveling as well, so I'm sure they would appreciate your prayers and um, God would just be with us. Greg will be uh, preaching next two weeks, so pray for him and his preparation as he uh, as he ministers the word of God to you. And um, uh, really, I'm pretty excited after seeing the snow this morning. I hate to say that. <laughs> Someone said we're just going to read a verse and needs no comment and go on, but I won't do that. <laughs> uh, but uh, I'm, I'm ex- um, looking forward to seeing some family, so you just pray for us as we, we travel. Um, Hebrews chapter number chapter number two. We've been looking at this, working our way through this. This morning, I want to uh, just remind us uh, that we have a bright future. Verses five through nine of chapter number two is what we'll be looking at together. Uh, a fourth century BC philosopher, Chinese philosopher, uh, to to be more specific, what's mused over a dream he had. Some of you may have heard of it. He went to sleep and dreamed he was a butterfly. When he awoke, he was so amazed at the dream, maybe it was so lifelike, he was confused. He wasn't sure if he was a man who dreamed he was a butterfly or if he was a butterfly dreaming at that moment he was a man. Uh, That's pretty complicated, isn't it, and confusing. (laughs) 
Well, we might on the outside kind of tell him who he is and what's going on in his life, but uh, we live in a world, uh, as you know, that seeks to answer the big questions in life, uh, in many cases without asking them. Uh, we uh, we want to know who I am, what is my purpose in life, why am I here, what do I want to do with my life, as well as the ability, as many of you know, to contemplate the reality of time, as Jan and I was speaking and just how quickly time moves on and how that impacts uh, how we perceive things. But not only our ability to contemplate time, but even the choices we make, we think about those things. Uh, we, don't, uh, we don't see that in the world around us, but we, we feel the weight of choices and we feel regret and all those things that, that come about. Our pursuit of careers, our love, our interests that we seek tend to define us and explain something of who we are as a person as a human, uh, as a society, really. But it is more than just our self-discovery and contemplation which marks us. It is the way we process and contemplate the world around us. So we think of ourselves, but we also think of the world around us. We want to know what keeps the sun coming back every day. And why, when I throw something in the air, it comes back down instead of floats off into space where all the stars are. Uh, we want to know what it takes uh, for me to move a rock from point A to point B. And, and we really want to know, is fire really hot? Does it burn, right? Our curiosity flows from a remnant of who we are as creatures, who God made us. Not only who we are as creatures and who God made us, but what he has created us for. But it also testifies to the world to come, what he is making us for or what we are anticipating as we find here in the book of Hebrews, as he mentions for us. Now, just kind of a review as we look at verses number five through nine this morning, uh, the argument that the writer is making, let me just read those verses for you. He says, for it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we're speaking, it has been testified somewhere. What is man that you are mindful of him or the son of man that you should care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor. I wonder if he was describing humanity this morning, you would use those words. He goes on and says, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside of his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. We see him, but we see him for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for every one. The writer of Hebrews is continuing his argument that he has been making from the beginning of this, uh, of this book, and that's basically that at the center of everything in his thoughts, all the way through the letter, uh, is Christ. He mentioned him as having a name that is much greater than the angels, that of sonship. He speaks of his deity and how that we find in Jesus in the chapter number one that he is the exact imprint of God, of his very nature. There is none like him, as we might say. And, and part of this is bringing these, these believers to the realization as they contemplate the, the majesty or the magnificence of angels and, and all the supernatural things revolving around that, that Christ is much, much better. In fact, there's no comparison at all. 
in the writer's mind. He is better than them. We see that magnified in verse number 13 of chapter 1. Look at it with me. And he says, To which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Well, the answer is none. He has not said it to any of the angels. And yet here to this one person, this son, God has given such privilege and honor and majesty. And the question could be asked at this point in the writer's mind, or at least the reader's mind, and sometimes in our own mind, well, well, how can someone so magnificent, so divine, so, uh, so in control of all things and creator of all things, how can he be so great compared to angels when he was so weak, when he was human? He walked the earth and didn't have a home, as we read in the Gospels. How can someone so magnificent be so great when he became so weak? There's a mystery in that, isn't there? As we find in the Gospel, glory, and on the road to glory, we see suffering and humility. And so the, the writer brings us back to this kind of discourse, not, not beginning here in the, in the future, but he brings us back to this discourse in the past. He wants us to be reminded of what the Word of God has said in previous times, how God has has intended for humanity to be and live and who they are. We find that reference in verses 6 through 8 coming from Psalms chapter 8. Why don't you turn there with me? Psalms 8. Bible says, the psalmist writes to us, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens out of the mouth of babies and infants. You have established strength because your foes to steal the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? You have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. And you have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen and all the beasts of the fields and the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea. Whatever passes along the paths of the sea, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. And the psalmist is uh, caught up in this. Uh, worship of God, contemplating who he is and his majestic name, considering not just who God is, what God has created, the world and the moon and the stars. And I was thinking the other night, I was, uh, Ryan and I was talking after a meeting and just to see the stars, how beautiful and bright and, and full the skies are. What a, what a place to live, right? We've got snow in July, but there's stars, right? They don't have that in New York City, but anyway. You, you see the wonder of God's creation. The psalmist is praising God for all of this. And it brings him back to his own or, or the contemplation of himself, of humanity, of mankind. In a conversation uh, we have had maybe in a men's Bible study or somewhere in the past couple of weeks, I was reminded that you don't go to the Grand Canyon to feel better about yourself. You go there to stand in amazement of how big and vast it is. You don't go to the ocean to to think how big you are in life. You go there to be humbled, to to be reminded how big God's creation is. 
And yet in all of this, the writer contemplates, who is man? Have you ever thought that? And you think of, so you might like elephants, Mary's uh, mamaw, we call her mamaw, you know. Uh, she likes elephants. They're, they're big, massive, humongous beasts. You see how small we are in, in strength and power and, and all the rest of God's creation. And you think for a moment, who am I in the midst of all this? Just, just a speck in God's creation. Yet he, he goes on in verse number four. Who is man? Not in his insignificant role, in his smallness. Who is man that you're mindful of him? You think of him. You, you consider him. He goes on in verse number four and then it says, Who is the son of man that you, that you care for him? Have you ever thought of that? Who are we that we are reminded that God cares for us, that he thinks of us? Isn't it the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus teaches us that our Father knows what we have need of and he knows the number of hairs on our head and all the things that he tells us, God's intimate knowledge of us? Who are we that God would give such care and consideration to us? And yet he goes on in the psalm, praising God, considering God's work of his hand and and, and making mankind. He said, you made him lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You've given him dominion over the works of your hands. And and the psalmist is going back to Genesis and, and recalling God's created design, his intention in making Adam and Eve king and queen of his creation. He created them, as he says in Genesis 1, 26 through 28. Let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and birds of the air, birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his image, the image of God. He created him male and female. He created them. Can I say this, that the value of personhood rests in our creator It is found in our creator, God, who tells us that we are created after his image, created in his image. He goes on and speaks about God blessing them and God uh, commanding them to be fruitful, multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish and over the uh, of the sea and over the birds and over the heavens and every living thing that moves on the earth. God created Adam and Eve in the garden in his image to fill the earth with image bearers. To fill the earth with, uh, with humanity that reflected the image of God as he created them. But not just to fill the earth with image bearers as they go forth and multiply and, and be fruitful. But to rule over God's creation that he brought under their command, under their authority, under their rule. Isn't that a fascinating thought? Adam naming all the animals as God brought them back in front of him to to name them. He put them and to spread the garden which God created for man to spread it to the ends of the earth. What a a testimony uh, and a reason to praise God this morning when we think about God creating humanity. We don't have that in our science class, do we? You go to school or college or wherever you go off to and you find that man is just some cosmic accident a product of random chance and evolutionary progress, which has the appearance of purpose and the illusion of importance. That's not very uh, flattering, is it? Some have considered man as uh, uh, nothing more than a virus upon the ecosystem of the world. 
Yeah, the Bible tells us something far different. God created man with the intended purpose that we would rule over his creation, bear his image in this world. And Psalms 8 is an echo, it is a declaration of praise, but it is an echo of God's created order, of God's creation of humanity. But going back to Hebrews, turn there with me at Hebrews chapter number 2. Some of you might revel in that and think about the praiseworthiness of God's created order, but, but the Hebrew writer is not naive, neither is his readers. What we come to find out in verse number 8 is that there is a realness to the world. Something happened between Genesis and, and, the, and the letter being, uh, being pinned down to these Hebrew Christians. He says in verse number eight, he says, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now, putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. What is he saying? See, there's reality in God's creation of humanity, but let's just face it, we don't see that. He's teasing this, this kind of realness, this this truth about what's going on and what the people are experiencing in real life and, and about what is the world to come. That's what he says back in verse number five. There is this present age that we live in, but there is this world to come. But right now it's different. Something happened, as we know. To put it another way, in Adam sinning and, and following after Satan in the Garden of Eden, Eden he laid down his kingship to become a slave and a bondservant of Satan. And Adam's sin, he became a beggar instead of flourishing in the role that God had given him. It's seen in several different ways if you're taking notes. One, it's seen in the fact the family became a, a place of conflict and murder. You don't have a lot of people on the earth in Genesis when you read about the first murder, do you? I mean, that kind of makes us wonder how we're all going to get along because, I mean, they didn't get along at the beginning. And it's kind of silly, but, but, but at the very beginning, the, the product, the fruit of their sin, their disobedience of God is subjection, subjecting humanity into depravity, and it brings about conflict. Cain killing Abel. Cain's descendant, Lamech, his fifth down the line, whatever it was, took two wives and boasted of killing a man and wrote a song about it. Since then, we see... Our relationship with one another, the strong oppress the weak. Violence and murder has become part of our society as a whole. And no matter what we do to strive and try to bring back some kind of utopia, some kind of Garden of Eden experience, it always fails. It always fails. Whether it's Babylon, the Tower of Babel, or whether it's Rome, or Greece, or Syria, or all the other nations that we've seen in our lifetime, it always fails. Marxism and socialism is nothing but a fairy tale that Karl Marx has told, some, some wild idea that he dreamed of, that this is what's going to bring peace and prosperity to humanity. It'll never work. And even as we might rejoice in republics or democracies and those things like that that boast of freedom and individual rights and all of those things they, they all fall at some point it never works out because power corrupts as the old saying goes and absolute power corrupts absolutely we live in a world that's that's manifesting the friction of humanity with itself 
It goes on, not only do we see that uh, in our relationship with one another is what we see today, but also our relationship with the animal kingdom. It's either eat or be eaten kind of thing, right? We don't have dominion really over the animals as we as we see. Uh, we, some of you that like fishing, I was thinking about that this past um, summer. John and I fished quite a bit over at the ministry center, and I, I wish I had dominion over it. I'd like to tell them, get in the boat, get on the line, do something. Then they just don't listen to me. You know, I tried to read Genesis to him, and it didn't work out. You know, we train animals, and we do a lot of cool stuff. But no matter what you do, a lion and a wolf will still not eat grass. They will eat you, though. You see the friction even in the animal kingdom uh, between man and his rule. Not only do you see it there, but you also see it in nature itself. We are at war Hurricanes and tornadoes, extreme weather, which kills, destroys everything in its past. Some of you might remember in 2004, a tsunami in Indonesia and 14 other separate countries in that area, 98-foot waves, destroying in a matter of minutes, 230,000 people died. And the writer is saying that we see the effect that what you see around us is not the world to come. We speak about man having dominion or rule or, or, or place over God's creation. What we see now is the world groaning under the curse of man and his disobedience and rebellion against God. What we could say in verse number 8 of Hebrews is putting everything in subjection under his feet, now putting everything in subjection under his feet to let nothing outside his control at present. And, and I think one of the words you could write outside that verse is, is here we are and he is speaking to these believers and he says, we are in the midst of waiting. We're in the midst of waiting. We don't see what it will be like. We're living in the tension of now and not yet. There is this this work of great salvation, this transformation, even of the human heart, even of the very core of those who come to faith in Christ. And yet we see, we see kind of a delay playing out in, in the world in some ways in, in creation. And yet the writer is constantly calling us this morning to look and live beyond the present. Right? To look and live beyond the present, to reach out and consider our full inheritance, the reward which is out in front of us. And that's exactly what perseverance is. It is enduring this present moment, not just to get through the present moment, but for that glorious reward which is promised to us. And so he says we don't see everything that, that it will be it doesn't mean it's not going to be. Even later on when he talks about them arrest being for the people of God, he's, he's causing them to look beyond the present suffering and circumstances and, and let that which is promised to you and about you be that which carries you, pulls you forward when your knees are weak and your back hurts and everything's difficult and hard and, and people are not nice. In the midst of that, it is that glorious hope which which pulls us along, that grace of God, those promises that are sure and amen and amen, which causes us and gives us that strength of endurance. And that's what he means in verse number 9, why we do not see what it will be like and, and we don't see the, the evidence of, of the world to come all, all the way in its fullness. 
he points us to Christ. Verse number 9, he says, But we, what we do see, there's much we don't see, but what we do see, we see him. Who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for every one. You see, he's pointing us to this reality of our inheritance and the, in the assurance of the fact of Christ who has gone before us. Now, there's a lot of questions to, uh, of who he's speaking about in verse number 8. And um, I, out of all the resources I've read and all the books I've read this week, they're, they're about 50-50. Some say he's talking about man in verse number 8, and, or 6, 7, and 8. And some say he's talking about Christ in verse 6, 7, and 8. And, and I trust all the guys that I'm reading, and they're all in disagreement. Speaking of Christ, they say back to verse number 13 of what we alluded to in chapter number 1. It is Christ who is sit at, uh, seated at the right hand of the Father, which God has promised to make his enemies his footstool. Bringing all things in subjection to him. Earlier he speaks about Christ as being the heir of all things. Back in verse number 2, the created world. Reminding us what Paul says in that same language in 1 Corinthians 15 verse 27 for he has put everything under his feet now when it says everything he has been put under him it is clear that he does not include God himself or the father New American translation standard states that but he does not include God the father who put everything under Christ so what is he saying he's saying he's put all of creation all beings all things under the feet of Christ and so we look at that Back in verse number 9, as, as some suppose that he's speaking here in this, this form of Christ, who's lower than the angels for just a little while, verse number 9. And back again in verse number 7, those, those statements going together, who not only was made lower, but he was crowned with glory and honor, who's been exalted, who's been kinged and, and given that glorious position. Reminds us that Jesus, it is Jesus who through his death, his humiliation and his glorification, all things are subjected to him. We don't see the fullness of that, but we will one day, right? We don't see the fullness of that, but we will one day. Others look at verse number eight as as being a, a, a reminder to humanity as a whole. If you read back in Psalms uh, chapter number eight that we looked at it's it's king david reveling over god's creation of man and the glory and honor that god has given humankind mankind well i like what one uh, writer says it says it really doesn't matter where you land the reality of verse number nine really sets us in the place and that is all that is promised and all that we anticipate is fixed in this one man, that man Christ Jesus found in verse number 9. All that we anticipate, all that is fixed, all that is true about us is fixed in that one man's humiliation and glorification found in verse number 9, the man Jesus. 
And you'll see more about that in chapter number two is while uh, or why he refers to him as Jesus and why he was made like his brothers. But here he's trying to say that that there is this glory, there is this anticipation, this world to come and all that comes with it because Christ himself humbled himself and he received glory. So we too will receive glory. We too will receive glory. We will. Can I say that? We will share in his glory. What do you think about that? We will share in his glory. That's what the Bible teaches. And I'll give you several verses if you don't believe me. 2 Corinthians 4.17 For this light and momentary affliction is preparing for us. And by the way, that's one of those verses that really makes you reconsider the way you complained this past week, right? For this light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory. Beyond all comparison. Romans 8, 17 and 8, he says, And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided that we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Notice that Christ, his glory, we're being glorified with him. 169 times the Bible says in Christ, Paul does, referring to this kind of union with Christ. And part of that is we will be glorified with him. For I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worthy comparing with the glory that is to be revealed. Now, ESV says to us. I think NIV says in us. I think it's a better translation. It's saying that the glory which will be revealed in us. And that's, I just think that's fascinating. It blows my mind. I don't know what it'll look like. We'll give you a few ideas maybe, but... He goes on in 2 Corinthians that we're at this present moment being transformed from one image, uh, one degree of glory to another. Yeah, I'm not saying that you and I are going to have light beams coming out our pores or anything like that. But what I am saying is that the Bible says that in Christ, the promise, the very thing that we anticipate is to share in his glory. To share in it. I want to give you three things that that means. Or, or at least two things. One, Paul describes it, it as he speaks about the glory which we will receive means that we will have an imperishable and immortal body. And some of you know, I was thinking of Jim when I wrote this down in his uh, constant back surgery. Some of you know that we live in a body which is perishable. Amen? Amen. So three of you uh, know that. It is decaying day after day, year after year. It just keeps on going down, 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 you know, as it goes. Some of you are really encouraging, by the way, to some younger people of what to look forward to in life. Just wait till you get my age, they say, and uh, you'll really have fun. But anyway, but what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, he's saying, don't you understand that that, that the temporal, the, the perishable, the, the temporary will be put off or that which is immortal, that which will never decay, that which will never lose its vitality, that which will never perish. We will live forever with Christ, everlasting life, but that everlasting life will be accompanied with a body which is equipped to make it everlastingly. Not only do we see that in First Corinthians fifteen forty nine, he says it is fashioned after Christ's resurrected body. He goes on and says, just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. 
we shall bear his image. John says the same thing in First John. He says, we don't know what we'll be like, but we know when we see him, we'll be like him. Which means a lot, but and a lot we don't understand. But one thing it does mean, it means that we what has been defaced in man right now, what has been, been distorted and marked or marred by man and his sinfulness and his rebellion will be removed. We will be restored fully into an image bearer which he intended and created us to be. We will bear the image of Christ for eternity. Both outward and inward, we will reflect the glory of our Lord. Isn't that amazing? As you think about you, what God has promised us in the gospel, one day we will be like him. One day he walked through doors. Maybe we'll do that too. I don't know. But secondly, not only do you see this this reality in sharing his glory, but you also see it in sharing his rule. We mentioned that in Romans 8 and verse 17. He says we are heirs, joint heirs with Christ. We will rule and reign with him. We're not going to sit on a cloud with a harp, you know, like the cartoons used to do, right? We'll rule with him. We will rule with him. Paul says something very provocative in 1 Corinthians 6, um, 2 and 3 that it just really is fascinating. And you almost, don't, you almost don't know what to do with it other than read it and believe it because that's what the word of God says. But he goes on and says, or he says in 1 Corinthians, do you not know that the saints will judge the world? Did you know that? That we will judge the world? And if the world be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? In other words, you're judging the world one day. Can't you deal with life now? You know. Do you not know that we are to judge angels? What do you do with that? Maybe some of you can send me something afterwards and, and kind of we'll get it figured out or something like that. But it's an amazing concept. He says we will rule and reign with Christ. We will judge angels. How much more than the matters pertaining to this life? We will rule and reign with him over angels in the kingdom of Christ. Several parables, as you know, Christ gives, gives us this impression. Again, that which is promised to us and about us is secured for us in Jesus Christ. Look at verse number 9 of Hebrews. We do not see it all, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so by the grace of God he might taste death for every one. We are restored fully to God, to purpose, to life, all that through Jesus Christ and Him coming in His humiliation and Him being willing to be made lower than the angels for a little while. And through that short time, that brief time, He would taste death. That's what He says here in verse number 9. He speaks about because of the suffering of His death, so that by the grace of God he may taste death for everyone because he humbled himself and was obedient unto death, even the death of the cross, so we might be restored. So that what we hope for and what is promised to us may be secured. It's not just, I think it'll all work out in the end. It might work out. I don't know what will happen after you die or, or what it'll be like when we die. No, all of that is secured in this one man and his humiliation and exaltation. Isn't that good? 
But we have that sure and steady promise that he willing to do this, he humbling himself so that we may be exalted in him. You and I walk for a short time in this life in humility. But we have that grand assurance that there will be glory in the end. We will share in the glory of our good God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And I don't know what all that entails other than what I've shared with you this morning. There's probably other things the Word of God says. But it is that anticipation which is secured for me. Which enables you and I this morning as born again believers to endure persevere it calls us back to that phrase for a little while it isn't always going to be like this whether it's a matter of 10 years five years two years 20 or 60 70 80 years it it is just in the scope of eternity is just a short season it is just a short season and in the midst of that you'll find at the end of uh this chapter it isn't just the fact of what awaits us which encourages us to persevere it is the active work of christ now which strengthens us in the midst of our suffering to persevere you see he tasted death for everyone and we i guess we need to deal with that expression for a minute what does he mean everyone he means everyone who believes the death of Christ, his sacrificial work of, of satisfying our sin, appeasing the wrath of God, what the Bible says he is our propitiation, which means that we have sinned against God, and because we've sinned against God, we've, we, we've brought about the wrath of God. It sits upon us. We're children of wrath, the Bible teaches. And yet because Christ died in our place, those who put their faith and trust in him, and those only, are that wrath is satisfied. So when he says he tasted death for everyone, that the expression of peace, it is it is a taste of death, it is the experience of death, it is a death for all those who will put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Amen. And that is the promise of the gospel this morning to all who believe, to all who come humbly, turning from their sin, receiving Christ their Savior. They all have this great hope. I want to just ask you this in closing, uh, as we um, you ready to go to the Lord in prayer? Do you consider this morning what Christ has purchased for you? As a Christian, what awaits you? The Bible says about us. You stand amazed at it, not to glory and revel in ourselves and, and how big we're going to be. And, and like John and, and the other James, his brother, saying, who's going to be the right hand and the right hand? You know, we do that kind of stuff in our world. And sometimes in, in trying to avoid that, we kind of step back from that state, those promises and those things which God has revealed to us. And yet Paul says these are the very things that help us endure. Comparing to suffering, the glory, there's no comparison. And both Corinthians and Romans, he, he's bringing us back into tough times and, and difficult situations. In the midst of that, he says, don't you know, you, there's glory at the end of all of this. And I think a church here in in Rome, whether they're in Rome or Italy, who's facing persecution and suffering and all the things that they're facing, that's exactly what the Hebrew writer is doing. Don't you see, this is not the way it's always going to be. It's just for a little while. It's just for a little while. We can take courage of that. One day we will <clears throat> be in the everlasting light of the countenance of Christ and his unshakable kingdom. 
you and I have much to anticipate this morning. You know, he does say, doesn't he, how shall we escape when we neglect so great a salvation? There is something about that statement, this great salvation. How could you reject that? The promise of life and glory and purpose and restoration, all those things offered to us in this one person, Jesus Christ. How can you neglect that? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time we gather together this morning. The joy it is to, uh, to be reminded as we, as we on one side and, and think about the days ahead of us. And they don't always feel bright and hopeful. And yet theologically, what your word teaches us, it brings us back. No, they really are. What we anticipate, not, maybe not in this life, but, but definitely and surely in the life to come as we consider and contemplate the work of your hand, your grace towards us. And thank you, Lord, that as we think about these things, we're reminded that you even now think of us and, and you pay mind to us, you care for us. What a joy that is. Lord, I pray for those here this morning that may not know you, God, that you would just work in their heart, open their eyes. And you teach us in Romans that it is your goodness that leads men to repentance. And I pray that they, I, I pray that they would see the goodness of you and your love extended to them through Jesus Christ. And they would, by faith, turn from their sins and receive this Savior who, who says, Behold, I make all things new. And so we pray for them this morning in Jesus' name. Amen.